Have you ever wanted to learn a new language, but just didn't have the time or money? I may have a solution for you. Her name is Jessica, and she gives free Chinese lessons daily at 11 p.m. Beijing time and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Chinese is fun and easy if you have the right teacher. Let Jessica be that teacher and introduce yourself to the fastest-growing language in the international job market today at tinyurl.com backslash tcjessica and tell her Ian sent you. Do you like fine art but think it might be out of your price range? Do you have a vision for a painting that you'd like to see brought to life but you just don't have the skill? I might have a solution for you. Art by Daisy. With decades of experience, Daisy offers high-quality, affordable watercolor paintings suitable for hanging in your home, office, or even as a gift. With prices starting at just $55, visit tinyurl.com backslash artbydaisy to find out more. Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I'm your host, author and journalist Ian Tott, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take a look at a brand new case this week. Before we get into it, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you would like to follow the show on social media, just search for the DeathCast, DeathCast Pod, DeathCast Official. You can find me on most social media platforms. However, if you want to interact with me, your best bets are TikTok, where I am extremely active as the administrator for our esteemed sponsor, Chinese Jessica, or Facebook. If you'd like to help Support the show. There's a couple ways you can do this. First and foremost, you can go to your favorite podcast app, leave a five-star review, and don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can also go to buymeacoffee.com backslash deathcast and leave a one-time donation. If you really enjoy what I do, however... The best way to support this show is to go to tinyurl.com backslash dcastpatreon, where as, for as little as $1.99 a month, you can get access to early ad-free shows along with exclusive content, such as the series that I did on Columbine and the current ongoing series covering the allegations against Vincent Kennedy McMahon, former head of the WWE, along with other allegations that have hounded him for decades. Because we're speaking of Patreon, I have to give my shout-outs, as always. Thank you to the first two members of the Patreon family channel, and Anthony, you guys are awesome. You have no idea how much I appreciate you, as I also appreciate Ruben, Debbie, and Robert. Alright, now that all of that is out of the way, find yourself a nice comfy chair, get something to drink, kick back, relax if you're at work. I hope this helps you get through the day. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes, let's go into the crypt. So the case that we're going to be looking at this week is a new one to me, and that is the crime spree committed by Douglas Gretzler 
and his accomplice, Willie Luther Steelman, who are two robbers that went on a mass murder spree in 1973. If you look online for them, you're going to see them listed erroneously as serial killers. And that is because, again, we've talked about this in other episodes, the FBI's definition of a serial killer is an individual who kills three or more people in different locations. Reality is, though, that Gretzler and Steelman were spree killers. Now, what is a spree killer? We haven't covered many spree killers on this show before. Spree killer is an individual or group of people that kill multiple victims at different crime scenes over a short period of time. One difference between a serial killer and a spree killer is, generally speaking, a spree killer, when they're killing people, there's it's usually not for the gratification that a serial killer will get. And if you know anything about serial killers, you know there's a lot of different classifications of serial killers, but almost all of them get some form of gratification from the act of killing, whereas with a spree killer, it's a means to an end, meaning they're doing it for a specific reason. In the case of Steelman and Gretzler killed people as they were witnesses to the crimes that they were committing. Before we get into the crimes, we're going to go over who the perpetrators were. The first and most well-known of this unknown pair is Douglas Edward Gretzler, who was born on May 21st, 1951 in the Bronx, New York. He was the son of a Navy veteran by the name of Norton Tilliston Gretzler and wife Janet. Gretzler was the second of two children born to this family, and his father was the president of the Tuckahoe School District while his mother was a homemaker. Gretzler was born in the Bronx not long after his birth. The family moved to Tuckahoe, which is a village in Westchester County. The family were seen as upstanding citizens and members of their community. It's been said that Gretzler's father was an extremely strict and oftentimes brutal disciplinarian, demanding that his children achieve scholastic excellence as well as be obedient to both he and his wife, and any sort of slip-up would result in a beating. According to Gretzler, his older brother Mark was their father's favorite, while he and his two sisters, Joanne and Diane, were constantly compared to Mark and belittled by their father. Further, these comparisons and this belittlement oftentimes took place in front of Mark, which gave him a superior air as Mark was academically gifted and extremely popular in school. Obviously, this gave Gretzler an inferiority complex, 
and despite the fact that he consistently tried to please his father, he was simply not able to do so. Gretzler was noted as being a below-average student, oftentimes garnering C's and D's in his schoolwork. Even when Gretzler was able to apply himself at school and achieve good marks, Gretzler's father was cold and indifferent. One story that Gretzler told was that one time when he received good grades, he ran home to show his father the report card. In response, his father threw the report card on the floor and simply told him that he expected him to do better. Obviously, this type of thing was extremely detrimental to Gretzler as he was growing up. And somewhere around the age of 11, he just decided to say, to hell with it and stopped trying to do anything that would please his father. Instead, he took the tract of trying to enrage and inspite his father, going out of his way to get beneath the man's skin. Whether it was the activities that he was getting involved with outside of school, his playing of drums, or the individuals that Gretzler chose to hang out with, he really started to rebel and to rebel hard. And somewhere in this period of time, 1965-1966, Gretzler discovered marijuana and he started using it regularly. And as the story goes from Gretzler, when his father discovered his son's usage of the drug, he confronted him, grabbing him by his shirt collar and slamming him into the partition uh, wall inside of the bedroom, which collapsed beneath both of their weight and sent them spilling out uh, into the bathroom floor. You can see this is not a healthy relationship, and this is not a healthy house for them to be in. This led the family to seek counseling, which Gretzler stated offered no form of appeasement to the tensions inside their home, stating that his father oftentimes took great pains to let his second oldest know what a great and utter disappointment he was. To further illustrate what a toxic environment the Gretzler children were growing up in, in early August of 1966, Douglas Gretzler's older brother, Mark, was caught handing out the answers to an upcoming exam. He said that this was a prank, and basically what it was, Mark had stolen the exam as well as the answer key from one of the teachers at the school. Obviously, this did not sit well with their father. On August 16, 1966, Mark was inside of his bedroom when he shot himself with a gun. And this part here comes from the Bronxville Review, Press, and Reporter, August 18, 1966. Tuckahoe official son dies. 
a 17-year-old Tuckahoe youth whose father is president of the District 2 Board of Education in East Chester apparently killed himself August 16th with a 22 caliber pistol. Police said the youth, Mark Gretzler, son of Mr. and Mrs. Norton T. Gretzler of 5 Henry Street, shot himself in the head about 10.30 p.m. in his third floor bedroom. The report said the family was discussing a family matter in the kitchen downstairs. The boy left a note, but police would not disclose its contents. Tuckahoe Police Chief John C. Bova said the note indicates the boy had problems. Mark was to enter his senior year at Tuckahoe High School in the fall. He was a member of the National Honor Society, Marshal of the Band, and was to have been co-editor of the school yearbook. Now, the matter being discussed was obviously the fact that Mark had gotten caught with this exam and handing out the answers to it. Although the family problems are not revealed, we know from already discussing it how toxic the household was. It's more probable than not that the father had beaten the shit out of his oldest son and let him know what a disgrace and a disappointment he was to them. And while I could not find any copies of the suicide note, I do know that there was really no reason given as to why Mark committed suicide and that the only real thing of note inside of this letter is the fact that Mark thanked his aunt for lending him the gun with which he took his own life. Now, obviously, this had a devastating impact on the family, with Douglas Gretzler later stating that his father's mood worsened considerably, and whereas before he was a complete bastard, now he was just unbearable. At one point, not long after Mark's suicide, the elder Gretzler, who had been in the basement drinking, emerged to confront his second-born and demand to know why it was Mark who had taken his own life when he would have been happier had it been Douglas who had taken his own life. As stated, the... Atmosphere in the household, the tension, the violence only got worse after Mark's suicide. So much so that Douglas began experimenting with heavier drugs. According to Gretzler, by 1968, when he was 15 years old, he had begun using LSD and mescaline. Obviously, this further served to drive a wedge between Gretzler and his father. Although it should be noted that Gretzler, despite being involved with all of these drugs, was still fairly active in school. He played baseball, basketball, and although he was average at both of these sports, he did seem to enjoy it, as he also seemed to have enjoyed playing the drums. And he reminds me quite a bit of an individual that we covered way back at the beginning of this show. Back in 2020, Ricky Casso. If you remember the Ricky Casso case, for those of you who have been listening that long... 
Ricky Casso came from, I don't want to say an affluent, but a well-regarded family on Long Island. Just like Gretzler, Casso's father was former military and was a real hardliner and difficult individual to get along with, who would often take out his disappointment at his son using physical violence. Casso, too, played sports, although different from Gretzler, as Casso excelled at sports. However, both of them turned to the use of drugs very early on in their adolescence, and it only continued to escalate the older they got driving wedges between both of them and their fathers. And as we know with Casso, he went on to commit a pretty horrific murder that kick-started the satanic panic in the United States. Gretzler, too, is going to go on and commit some really horrific crimes. And it raises the question for me of whether or not both of the, these individuals that I was just speaking about if it's a case of nature or if it's a case of nurture, by all accounts, Gretzler's friends and relatives were shocked when he was arrested for the crimes that he committed, as were Ricky Casso's. People just didn't think that they had it in them and that they were that type of individual. And it makes me wonder if the atmosphere of the, their homes, the beatings, the verbal berating may not have served to influence both of these young men into committing the crimes that they eventually did commit, just as I believe that what was going on in their homes led both of these men into the use of narcotics. Now, unlike Ricky Casso, who ends up dropping out of school, Gretzler does in fact finish high school, graduating in 1969. Although, he was not to follow in his father's demands, which was to go to college and get a degree. Instead, Gretzler chose to get a job working as an auto mechanic. This is more likely than not because Gretzler had such strong resentments against his father for his treatment of his son growing up that it was just another middle finger in the old man's eyes. Gretzler worked at this job off and on over the next few months before abruptly deciding that none of this was working and he was going to move. So in 1970, Gretzler moves from New York all the way to Florida. Amazingly enough, Gretzler gets down to Florida. He's working numerous odd jobs, and he encounters a woman by the name of Judith Eyle, E-Y-L, who was from Manhattan. The two of them hit it off, and they start dating. And it's not long after this that... David and Judith announced that they are getting married. So in February of 1970, the two of them tie the knot in Miami, Florida. Not long after this, the couple decided that 
it would be in their best interests to go back to New York, back to being close to where family is at. So, in 1970, the spring, early summer, they move back to New York and settle in an apartment in the Bronx. Judith gets a job working full-time at a bank, and Douglas works various odd jobs. It's been said that Gretzler would work at a job for a period of time, usually a couple of days or a few weeks before invariably quitting it and moving on to something else. This obviously caused friction inside of the home and led to many arguments between Douglas and Judith. This was further compounded when the couple found out that Judith was pregnant and in 1972 she gave birth to a daughter whom the couple named Jessica. Now, according to Judith, Doug was a fairly doting father at first. However, as time progressed and responsibility for taking care of this child, he began to neglect his daughter, leaving her at home with her mother as Douglas went out and wandered the streets. Some accounts have it that Gretzler actually adopted a orphaned newborn during this period of time, although all of the current information out there negates this fact. I actually found this in old newspaper clippings from the 1970s, where it stated that he adopted this, this child despite the fact that the family was not able to provide either for themselves or for their newborn daughter. Not long after Gretzler's daughter's born, he inherits a trust fund from a family member. This was on his 21st birthday. The trust fund amounted to several thousand dollars, and Rather than looking at this as the financial windfall that the family needed to get themselves out of hock, instead Gretzler turns around and spends it on a 1967 and MGB sports car, which he proceeded to soup up and make various improvements with while completely neglecting the family. Obviously, this led to a worsening in the relationship between Douglas and Judith. Later on in the year, Douglas gets a job at the Tuckahoe Concrete Factory making concrete. And this was seen as a respectable, although dirty, job. And the family seemed as though they might actually level off for once. As Judith Yes, she's taking care of the child. She's working here and there. Douglas is now working full-time, bringing home a paycheck weekly. That all changed on December 26th of 1972. Judith and their daughter left the apartment that day, and Douglas sprang into action, throwing some of his clothing inside of a duffel bag, 
and going out to the street where he got into his car and he simply left. It was later stated that he did this because of the family's growing financial difficulties, as well as the fact that he simply did not want to be living the life that he was currently living. Gretzler stated that his initial plan was to relocate to Colorado and start his life over. However, the day after leaving on December 27th, he finds himself in Casper, Wyoming, where he finds a room and takes a number of low-paying jobs. Gretzler is still recreationally using drugs at this point, and in June of 1973, he ends up getting a ticket for a traffic violation, as well as being arrested for vagrancy. And this was on June 28th, so roughly eight weeks after this happens, Douglas packs up his meager belongings into the car and sets out again, this time driving into Denver, Colorado. We're going to switch tracks at this point and turn our attention to Gretzler's partner in the coming crime spree, that is Willie Luther Steelman, known to friends and acquaintances as Bill. Steelman was born March 21, 1945, in San Joaquin, California, which is really in the north-central part of the state, not quite in the Bay Area, but within spitting distance of it. I, I lived not far from San Joaquin County when I lived out in California, and it's a very different area from what most people envision when they think of California, because obviously when people think of California, they think of Los Angeles and San Francisco. San Joaquin County is in the San Joaquin Valley, and because of this, is very rich and heavily laden with agriculture. And that is what Steelman's family were employed as. Originating in Oklahoma, the family moved to California in 1935. His father, Lester, was a foreman at a farm in San Joaquin while his mother, Ethel, also worked on the farms. By the time that Steelman came around in 1945, there was already an older sister by the name of Francis, as well as a brother named Gary. It's been said that although the family really did not have any money, they were very close-knit. Not long after... Steelman was born, the family settled in Lodi, California, which is still within San Joaquin County. And the upbringing of Steelman was largely left to his oldest sister. It has also been said that growing up 
Steelman was something of an outcast, not particularly popular with the other students in school, and not particularly interested in the goings-on of his community. He tended to be a loner who, more often than not, preferred to do his own thing. As opposed to his future partner, Gretzler, Steelman's home life, although financially poor, seems to have been fairly stable. At least that is until he turned 13 years old, at which point his father ends up passing away. Obviously, this put the family under even greater financial strain and further served to alienate Steelman from those around him, not only in the community of Lodi, but also within his own family. Steelman began to commit petty crimes during this period of time just after his father died, and eventually he ends up dropping out of school despite the protestations of his mother, who would constantly demand that her youngest child either go back to school and continue his education or get a job. According to his siblings, this would lead Steelman to grow violent towards his mother, and he oftentimes would make threats against her. It's known that Steelman began using drugs recreationally during this period of time. And this was further exacerbated when the following year, his mother remarries. And while it's said that Steelman was still on friendly terms with his mother at this point, he resented the fact that his mother had, quote-unquote, attempted to replace his father, along with the fact that his mother frequently complained to her youngest son about his directionless lifestyle, often comparing him to his brother Gary. In 1962, when he's 17 years old, Steelman's mother and stepfather persuade him that he should join the United States Navy, which Willie does in fact do. However, his enlistment was short-lived, and because of lack of discipline, motivation, as well as his criminal tendencies, a few months after enlisting, Steelman is unceremoniously booted from the Navy which forces him to return back home to live with his mother and stepfather. Obviously, this did nothing to improve the relations between Stillman and his mother. Tensions within the house became such that in the fall of 1963, when he's now 18 years old, Stillman moves out of his family's home and travels to Denver, Colorado, where his sister, Frances, was living with her children. However, according to Frances, it quickly became apparent that her younger brother was not going to work out, as he was oftentimes 
under the influence, refused to look for work, and would frequently berate her and her children in a threatening manner. Frances had no other recourse but to demand that her little brother move out of their home, which he does. Turning to live with his mother and stepfather in Lodi, California. For the next year or so, Steelman worked various odd jobs while continuing to use and abuse drugs as well as commit petty crimes. This all came to a head in 1965 when Steelman is arrested for both forgery as well as using a minor in the commission of a crime. And this next piece is kind of odd, and it may have to do with the fact that California was trying to keep this young man away from the real hardened criminals, but Steelman ends up getting placed into the custody of the California Youth Authority, which is basically the organization within the state of California that oversees youth offenders and places them inside juvenile halls that type of thing. And I say this because during this period of time, Steelman's 19, 20 years old. That's why it's odd to me. In any event, he gets sent to a place called the Pine Grove Work Camp. Now, for those of you who don't know what a work camp is, it's a low-level security prison or jail Usually, the individuals housed at these units are non-violent offenders with a short sentence. They will work for the state doing various things. When I lived in California, one of the places that I lived in, we had what everyone referred to as the fire camp that was in our local community, and it was a prison that was overseen by the California Department of Forestry. And basically what they did was the prisoners were at this place serving out their sentence, but part of that sentence involved them being sent out to work for the fire department, such as helping to put out forest fires or performing janitorial duties. You've seen the guys on the side of the road in the orange jumpsuits with the prison guard station nearby picking up trash. In California, that is the these work camps. That's what they primarily do with the prisoners in their care. Steelman ends up spending seven months in prison. Upon being paroled, Steelman ends up getting a job working as a field hand, and eventually he comes into a contact with a 15-year-old high school student at Lodi High School. And very quickly, the two of them decide to get married. They did this by traveling to Reno, where it was legal for the two of them to get married. And eventually, Steelman and his new bride move back to Lodi, where they move in with his parents. However, the marriage is not to last, as very shortly after this, a warrant is issued for Steelman's arrest in connection with cash and stolen 
checks. Now, in January of 1966, he ends up back behind bars, and while he's behind bars, his wife's father has the marriage annulled. This sends Steelman over the edge, and he attempts to commit suicide. As a result of this, he ends up getting transferred to the Stockton State Hospital before eventually being transferred to the Atuscadero State Hospital, where it was noted that, quote, he's making remarkable progress, and because of this, Steelman ends up getting sent back to the Stockton State Hospital. Steelman ends up getting sentenced to 14 months for the check cashing scam, and he's sentenced to spend his time at the California Men's Colony, which is located in San Luis Obispo, still within the San Joaquin Valley. Interestingly enough of note, Bobby Bussolari from the Manson family was also resident at the California Men's Colony, as was Richard Allen Davis and Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. They, in fact, met at the California Men's Colony prior to going on their killing spree. It was noted that Steelman was a model prisoner while he was incarcerated at the men's colony. Interestingly enough, Steelman ends up getting paroled after just two months. On September 16th of 1968, this is in part due to the fact that he had spent so much time in the state mental hospitals, as well as the fact that when he was free and clear of drugs, Steelman was said to be a model prisoner. However, as with everything, as soon as he gets back out on the street, he's back into his old habits. One friend later said of Steelman that he described his desire for heroin similar to how a man will lust after a woman. It's the exact same thing. Because that's what Steelman was involved with at this point. He was a fairly heavy heroin user. Despite this addiction, Steelman ends up getting a job at a local trucking company where he works as a shipping clerk. His Sister Francis has stated that during this period of time, Steelman informed everyone who would listen that he had turned his life around despite everything that he had been involved with previously. However, this was not the case as in 1969, Steelman is arrested after selling LSD to two 14-year-old girls. He ends up getting sentenced to 43 days behind bars and a $625 fine. It's while he's serving out this particular sentence that he meets a woman by the name of Kathy Stone. So being released in the spring of 1969, Steelman moves into Stone's home. And it's while he's at this 
Kathy Stone's home that Steelman encounters another high school student from Lodi High School by the name of Denise Michelle. The two of them end up getting married in 1969, and eventually they relocate first to Sacramento and then later on to Mountain Valley. Now, over the next two years, Steelman is in constant run-ins with the law, getting arrested for various low-level offenses, on occasion doing small stints behind bars. Each time he gets out, he's coming back with the resolve of, I'm, you know, I'm turning my life around, I'm going to do this thing, only to fall down and get himself into trouble again. People described Steelman as an individual who always stated that he was going to be something someday. People were going to remember him and that he would throw himself into things only for some little thing to pop up and completely derail all of his plans, at which point Steelman would go back into his drug usage and then this in turn would lead him back into committing crimes as he attempted to feed his habit. By the end of 1972, Steelman's wife Denise had become absolutely disgusted with him and stated repeatedly that he needed to turn his life around and get off the junk or it was over. So Steelman ends up getting a job at the Vista Ray Convalescent Hospital, which is located in Lodi. And the pay for 1972 standards wasn't too terrible. He was making $320 a month, however... His addiction simply proved too strong, and Steelman ends up getting his hands on prescription pads and forging his own prescriptions. This leads to Steelman getting caught by the hospital and fired from his job, which in turn leads his wife to leaving him on New Year's Day of 1973. Denise reportedly told Steelman that she was sick and tired of his behavior, of always being broke, and of never knowing whether or not they were going to have a roof over the head by the end of the day, in addition to the fact that her paychecks largely went to fuel his drug habit. Now, because of all of this... In the early part of the year, Steelman ends up traveling to Denver to meet up with and stay with his sister, Frances. And according to her, at first everything seemed to be fine. Her brother seemed to have his act together, but it quickly became apparent that all of this was a ruse and that Steelman was still using heroin. And she becomes frustrated with him and demands that he either clean up his act and get a job or get out of her house. However, Steelman refuses and instead moves into an unfurnished, unfinished part of the home. The brother-sister dynamic was further compromised when Steelman latched on to his 17-year-old niece and her friends, 
regaling them all with tales of his various crimes as well as numerous made-up stories in an effort to make him seem much bigger and cooler than he was. Obviously, you know where this is leading. Steelman's going to end up becoming involved with one of these girls because... For some reason, he has a predilection for high school girls. And by some reason, I mean there's every reason to believe, at least in my opinion, given his past history, that this individual was sexually aroused by young girls. Meaning girls who were not of legal age in their teenage years. The girl in question is named Marsha Renslow. Marsha came from a somewhat rough background, liked hanging out with the bad boys, and ends up hooking up with Steelman. And it's through Steelman that he meets a friend of hers by the name of Douglas Gretzler. Now, this young girl wanted the two men to go and steal motorcycle parts for her, which they go and do. During the course of this robbery, the two men quickly discover that they have a lot in common. Not only were both of them petty criminals, they also have burgoing drug problems. Because of this, they very quickly hit it off and become nearly inseparable. This causes... Steelman's sister Frances great distress because she's already got one low-life junkie living in her house. Now she's got another one who is constantly around and the two men are obviously getting into no good. They talk constantly about the various crimes they committed and how they always are looking to get their hands on illicit goods in order to feed their drug habits. With Steelman reportedly showing Gretzler how to steal and forge checks as well as purses. At some point in the late summer and early fall, they commence one of Steelman's niece's friends, a young boy, to give them his shotgun. And Upon receiving this gun, the men's ideas start taking a rather sinister turn as they start discussing how to commit more serious offenses in order to make bigger paydays, but also how they can start to not get caught for their crimes. Basically, what they've realized is the reason they keep getting caught is that they're constantly leaving witnesses, and the best way that they can avoid this, rather than get clean and sober and go on the straight and narrow, is to, in fact, eliminate the witnesses. Obviously, Frances Steelman has no idea of what her brother is planning with his newfound friend. She sees her brother making these small attempts to straighten himself out. At this point, he has started attending Bible classes. He's talking a good game, but again, still, he's not doing anything. And she becomes so disgusted with all of this that Frances, who at this point 
has stopped paying her mortgage decides that, you know what, screw this, I'm out of here. She takes her children and moves into a nearby apartment complex. And after she and her children move out, she then informs her brother that, hey, look, you're going to be shit out of luck here because the bank's foreclosing on the house and I'm not going to do anything to stop it. So you might as well get out of there now before the sheriff's department come, shows up and locks everything up. Not long after this, Steelman announces to Gretzler and Renslow, hey, you know what? We don't have a place to stay here now, and I'm getting tired of this crap. I'm leaving the area. I think I'm going to head down to the Phoenix area, and obviously Gretzler has nothing going on. He asks if he can accompany his friend, who readily agrees to the idea. According to statements that she later gave, Marsha Renslow decided that she wanted to accompany the two of them. As there was a 21-year-old by the name of Catherine Mistites, who had worked as a masseuse and a prostitute before relocating to Phoenix. Well, Marsha was in fact a closeted lesbian and was madly in love with this woman. And she decided that she wanted to go with them in the hopes that she could encounter this woman and rekindle whatever it was that had between the two of them. Stillman and Gretzler decide that this is, you know, a wonderful, you know, great big adventurous road trip, and they agree to allow Marcia to accompany them. So on October 9th, 1973, the trio get inside of Gretzler's car, and they head out of Denver. That night, they stop at a motel, and it's at this stop that Gretzler ends up discharging the shotgun that the two of them have inside of the hotel room. Obviously, this leads to them being thrown out, and they spend the next two nights sleeping inside of Gretzler's car. We are going to cut off the story here and pick it back up next week where Gretzler and Steelman make it to Arizona and the plans that they had been talking about in the prior months actually come to fruition. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Death Cast looking at the crime crimes of Douglas Gretzler and Willie Steelman. Until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing in association with Big Pond Podcasting. Stay morbid.